HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm your host, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. We are bringing you a very special guest today, live from our studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn, inside Roberta's Pizza. I am delighted to welcome to the shipping container, culinary trailblazer, prolific author, founder of Edible Schoolyard and Chez Panisse Restaurant in Berkeley, and decorated hero of the good food movement, Alice Waters. Welcome. Thank you so much. So I'm so pleased to see you here in New York. You're here on book tour for your latest release called Coming to My Senses, which just came out in September. How's the tour been so far? And can you give us a little taste of where it's taking you? Well, it's really beginning here in New York. I did a few um, panel discussions in San Francisco before I left, but I'm going to be here for the rest of this week, going to the farmer's market tomorrow. Very excited, Union Square. And I'm and going to D.C. Books, after that. Right? But you'll be signing books at Union Square I will. tomorrow? I will. Very exciting. Amazing. And then to D.C.? And then to D.C. Wow. Well, we're so happy to be with you here. Uh, I thought it might be great if you could open with a little bit of the preface of your book to give our listeners a taste of the opening in your own voice. That would be wonderful. I'd love to. Here is how I cook. First, I'm at the farmer's market, buying a bunch of French breakfast radishes, the purple fringe lettuces, the spring garlic. I'm thinking about the state of the Blenheim apricots and the Santa Rosa plums. I'm looking for fruits and vegetables that are perfectly ripe things that just came out of the ground or were just picked. I'm not necessarily thinking about how the ingredients will go together. I'm just responding to what I'm finding. It's about aliveness, a lot about color, the smell of things, the look. I'm listening to what the farmer has to say and what's going on in the fields. I think we forget sometimes that food is alive. And we have to follow that intuition and treat food as a living thing. That's beautiful. Thank you. So this is a book about beginnings, and it's um, the prelude of your early life, your family, 
your many awakenings that we will talk about and uh, up to the opening of your restaurant Chez Panisse. Um, I want to just make a note that we have you here in our shipping container studio where you have been a friend of Heritage Radio Network since our very beginning. And uh, I'm just wondering if it's bringing you any memories of when Patrick first reached out to you and told you he was opening a radio station in a shipping container here. Well, I wasn't surprised that Patrick was doing something crazy. (laughs) But I was very delighted that it was next to a restaurant and a, a, and a restaurant that was dedicated to buying food from farmers. Uh, they actually have a garden on top of this restaurant. Um, in part thanks to you. Oh, well, I was so excited about that, and it's still there and thriving. So the book is, um, it covers a really large span of your life, but so many of the stories in the book relate to the relationships that you had with many, many friends who helped direct you, I think, towards opening Chez Panisse. You said in the book that you felt like it was always fated or predetermined that you would open that restaurant. Can you talk about what ultimately gave you the confidence and the momentum to make the leap from cooking for those friends and uh, appreciating the ingredients that you love, as you talk about in that preface, to actually opening the restaurant? Well, I was inspired by the free speech movement at the University of California. I arrived in 1964, kind of front and center, and I had never really been involved with politics before that time, and I I was swept into it, the civil rights movement as well, um, the anti-war movement, and I was part of that that counterculture that um, didn't believe what the government was doing was right. And so we wanted to create another world where there were human values and respect for each other, and I never had a moment's hesitation about whether I was, you know, qualified to open a restaurant. (laughs) I didn't have any experience, really, in working in restaurants, but I had felt so empowered by that movement that I knew that people would come, and of course, if the food was good, I mean really good, I knew that I knew that they would continue to come. Mm-hmm. And the food was really good, and it <laughs> continues to be every day, and you've um, really stuck to the traditions that you started the opening of the restaurant with. I loved reading about the very first night at Chez Panisse, and uh, how kind of chaotic it was, um, but then Uh, Can you just tell us the feeling that you had at the end of that night as service was ending and you were exhausted and what that was like with your early opening team? Well, we were were not professionals. You know, we were a group of friends who uh, loved to eat and we cooked at home. And we didn't know the the way normal people, or uh, shall we say... uh, 
businesses were supposed to be run. And so, in a way, that's what has really given Chez Panis the character that it has, because we, we just cooked the way we did it at home. We put, you know, two tarts in the oven at a time. We, we cooked, we only had one menu, because we didn't want to throw anything out. The restaurant was in a house. So it seemed very appropriate that we would serve a complete menu. But we didn't have the logistics together. And by the end of that first night, I mean, we ran out of food. (laughs) That's one thing that we did. And we couldn't quite imagine how we were going to open the next day. We, We really couldn't imagine. And uh, we drank a bottle of wine and <laughs> hoped for the best. And you did it. You opened we the did next it. day. We did it. We were very determined. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just always, and it continues to be, a work in progress. It never gets quite right. There's always something that you want to do better. And uh, it's that that sort of propels the, the institution now. Mm-hmm. So you've always been a trailblazer in, in so many ways, and you were involved with the free speech movement and the civil rights movement, and you were very, very political and also part of this counterculture, but you also you did a lot of travel independently as a woman. You describe in the book that the time you grew up in was a very fearful one at times, and that when you were a student, you would have air raid and atomic bomb drills, and you talk about a recurring nightmare that was spurred by the execution of the Rosenbergs, but your personality also emerges through those early childhood memories, and um, you also talk about being in control and describe your nostalgic memories of visiting the Automat in Times Square. And you say your favorite part about that is being able to see the food and choose for yourself and make your own decisions to go your own way. And uh, the way that you've done that throughout your life was not always within standards of society of how most women were behaving. You went camping with Judy Johnson through Hungary, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece. You traveled alone in Italy. You lived with a lot of partners that you weren't married to. And you discovered your freedom as a person. Did you know from an early age that that was your personality? Or did that emergence and your role in the counterculture movement ever surprise you? That's a very good question. I... I think I was always um, very determined and liked being in charge. In some way, I was the shortest in the class, and so I was always at the end of the line. But that may have helped me to speak up uh, the way that I did. I always talked too much in grammar school, and they had to... Uh, put me in solitary confinement. <laughs> uh, but I, I wanted things a certain way. And I sort of went about doing them. And after that 
trip to France and that awakening that I had, I came back to Berkeley and I wanted to live like the French. And it had to do with a lot of things. I mean, yes, it had to do with taste. I was looking for the tastes that I had in France. And I knew it had to do with sitting around the table and talking with all different kinds of people and hearing their stories and ideas and what their work was. And I was fascinated by that. But it had a lot to do with everyday beauty in my life. I wanted to be able to take a walk in an incredible park, like the Tuileries Gardens. I wanted to have museums available. I wanted to listen to concerts in churches. I, 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 I wanted this cultural accessibility. And um, when I came back, I looked for that as well. And unfortunately, in this country, you know, culture has really been for people who have the money. And the idea that, that your everyday life is not so important, how you, how, you, how you decorate your room, or how beautiful your kitchen is, or how, how you set the table, that, that these things are somehow not valuable. But they've always been incredibly important to me, again, inspired by the French and my travels. Are there any anecdotes that, in writing the book, surprised you because you feel much differently about them now? Well, I've, I've read this book with two friends. Um, one of them had worked for me, and she's 35, and she took incredible dictation. She's a wonderful writer. And another friend who I've known for... 34 years, and he is 60, and um, he knew how to provoke me. He's a writer as well and an artist, and we would sit together, and they would ask me questions about stories that I told them, and I would never have thought to talk about certain things, but they said, I want to know about your father. Don't you remember really what he was like? You know, you say he po polished, wanted you to polish the piano every, every week, and, and he was neat as a pen. But, but what did he give you? And, and how has that been translated into the way that you see things? And I guess an orderliness was very important to me, is very important to me. I, I, I like things sort of in their places. And uh, I always cook in that way. I organize myself uh, uh, so that I can really accomplish making a meal for my friends. And I, I just... I just have it all planned out, and I think about my father. <laughs> but I, 
I wouldn't have probably made those kinds of connections if they hadn't probed me to do so. Mm-hmm. Was that the most difficult part that you had to relive in the writing of Coming to My Senses? I uh, know uh, the difficult parts were the emotional parts when there was something painful that happened or uh, you know, when somebody died, or I, I, that I had to really think about it, and and you know, it was a little bit like therapy. Mm-hmm. And I cried um, because certain things were very emotional. When I uh, read the passage that Mario Savio spoke, um, I I put that speech in the book. And when I read it, I remember how I felt, and tears come to my eyes. Because he said, you know, you have to take a risk. You have to do that. You have to be willing to back up your, your, your values. And if something is immoral, you have to stand up and say, say so. And he... He didn't, you know, he did this in the most peaceful ways of having a sit-in, a peaceful sit-in, but you needed to protest. And uh, I just kept thinking about what's happening today and our need to do this. Do you think about that speech today when you're preparing yourself? You're still very much an activist. How I am, but then I was unwilling to take the risk. I was unwilling to go to jail. Many people did, but I didn't know how important it was to do that. And I, I think I would be willing to do that now. Wow. I have some other um, questions about your father, because he did come and work with you at Chez Panisse for a time and uh, wrote a book about the structure, actually, and the culture of the restaurant that you had developed Uh, called Organic Leadership. Can you tell us about what that structure was and how your vision for the place and how your vision as a person uh, guided that unconventional leadership structure? Well, my father was sort of a business psychologist, uh, and he tried to help people work together. And uh, very... um, very directly who would have gatherings and they would talk about you know what people did really well and what they did that wasn't so good and how they could really get better at it and I I just was very put off uh, by that that sort of group therapy at that time But my father came into the restaurant, and he um, he wondered how we were really going to organize a group of 50 people when we didn't ever sort of communicate directly, that we were passing notes back and forth. And he suggested... um, uh, he came in and worked with the dishwashers first in the middle of the night. You know, he came in at 11 o'clock. And, and to, so that he could understand their job and help to represent them 
at a meeting. And, and again, I, I was resisting it, but I knew it was important mm -hmm. that they were represented. And um, so I allowed him to do his, his way of, of organizing. And of course, the, it was successful. <laughs> and he brought the computer into the restaurant, although I was kicking and screaming. He said, you know, it's just more clear the ordering can happen. And instead of so much um, hand labor, and this is going to help you to have more time to cook. And I, I, I really thank him for persisting. But he had never seen a restaurant run the way Chez Panisse had run. I mean, where you, you're collaborating from the top down. Even though I had the last word, it was, uh, you know, we were so inexperienced. And so we had to talk to each other about what we were planning to cook. And, and it was spontaneous in a way. So there's also a, a piece in the book about your father um, beginning to uh, explore some of your purveyors for the restaurant and discovering a garden that was uh, completely out of line with his vision for the perfect, tidy, ordered garden. Uh, and, and now we know some things about companion planting and, and uh, agricultural techniques where that's uh, a very valid means of production. But um, gardening was always important in your family. And uh, I'd love for you to tell us about how the theme of Victory Gardens began in your family and how it persevered with you throughout your life and career. Well, that's part of the war effort. Um, uh, Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt in particular uh, asked the country to, to plant backyard gardens uh, to feed themselves so that the food could be sent to the troops in Europe. And so... My father, um, because of his eyesight, he couldn't really go to the war effort. And so he was wildly enthusiastic about doing things that would help, and he decided to plant uh, what looks to me like about a two-acre garden behind our house. And he um, was always working in that garden. And they ended up having a victory garden basically their whole lives. And my mother would uh, can fruits and vegetables from the garden that we would eat during the winter. And uh, I, some of my earliest childhood memories come from eating in the garden. Uh, one time I my mother dressed me as the queen of the garden for a costume. I love uh, this story. <laughs> a costume contest at the local park. And so I had an asparagus soup and a, soup, a skirt. And a <laughs> soup. I was a soup uh, with uh, a wreath of strawberries on my head. And I had bracelets of peppers and anklets and a lettuce leaf top. And, uh, 
and I believe I won first prize. <laughs> so that probably made an impression on me that it's lasted. But my father had that in him. And when he discovered that we were always looking for the supplies, he said, why don't you have a garden of your own? And uh, he said, I'll look for a garden. We'll call up uh, at the university and find out all of the organic farms that are within one hour of Chez Panisse. And over the course of a year, he went and he visited all of the farms and came back and made a report to us. He found three, but only one he thought was crazy enough to work with us. <laughs> and that was Bob Kennard. And he couldn't have been more right. Now, Bob was an eccentric Gardener, and when my father first went, he couldn't see the vegetables for the weeds. And Bob convinced him in that day there that he was doing the most sort of cutting edge, nutritious work mm-hmm. and planting and, and really taking care of the soil so that it could give everything to the plants. He always said, my vegetables are 10 times more nutritious than anybody else's. And it's amazing because he's had them analyzed, and in fact, they are. <laughs> so that, that really changed our whole uh, thinking at the restaurant to, to really be working with the farm and supporting the farm entirely. Uh, he brought, you know, the values into Chez Panisse, and, and we got to completely depend on him. We do depend on him. We have many, many, many other people that we buy from uh, at different times of the year, but Bob is our mainstay f- farmer. Fortunately, his farm was saved uh, uh, in the fires that have been happening up in Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Rosa in Northern California. But it's been really, really difficult uh, for many people we know, and certainly for the land that has been burnt to the ground. Mm-hmm. Are you expecting any long-term effects on Chez Panisse? I know the restaurant has already been affected, um, but what will the near future look like? Well, it's very hard to say. There's a huge outpour of, of you know, help coming from all around. Uh, people organizing to, to feed people and house them. But the, the torching of the land the scorching of the land. It, it's, it's something uh, incredibly sad. It's devastating to some of these. These vineyards have been burnt really to the ground, their homes, their wineries, and all. So I don't know. But having had two fires at Chipanese, I can say that that there's something else that comes from in, in the rebuilding. 
and you feel so grateful that that you're alive, <laughs> and that nobody was hurt, um, and and you really want to rethink the way you rebuild, and I'm sure that that is happening right now uh, in in that whole area, um, but it's tragic. Yeah. Well, we'll be following the story really closely, and I'd love to stay in touch about the rebuilding process. I think that's going to be so fascinating to see that come, and I know there's been so much support, and hopefully more will be pouring in. Um, <laughs> but we're going to you know, look at a lot of replanting, recreating, and um, so on sort of a growing an agriculture theme, it's really important to me that we get to talk about Edible Schoolyard, because... Of course, you're the founder of Edible Schoolyard, and you are um, a big proponent of making food part of school curricula. So why is that so important, and how is Edible Schoolyard participating in that? (laughs) Well, the Edible Schoolyard project started about 22 years ago, and I always had, from its very beginning, a very big vision about what it could be. Uh, I know we started just with the garden, uh, but with the idea that the garden would be like a lab for teaching all the academic subjects, and the kitchen classroom likewise. Even though we were doing cooking, we were connecting it to the history of a particular country and eating the food of that place, cooking the food. But the sort of centerpiece of the idea was meant to be school lunch. And I imagined it to be free for everyone. And I wanted the school lunch to really be like Chez Panisse in that it would support directly the farmers and the ranchers and the fishermen, all of them that were taking care of the land for the future. So I wanted to buy directly from those people, leave out the middleman, or to have a nonprofit in the middle position to bring the food to the schools. And I have never let go of that idea I am very pleased, of course, right now that New York City has decided to give a free school lunch to every child K through 12 in the city of New York. It's amazing. We're so excited. Well, I, I, we were ecstatic when we got the news earlier this it's year. Just, it's just great. But I'm hoping that in the next years as it unfolds, that that idea of school-supported agriculture can be put into place. Because it's not just any food you want. You want food that is nutritious, food that comes from the farmers who are really doing it without herbicides and pesticides and who really care Mm -hmm. and about how they take care of the land for the future. So I'm... I'm cheerleading for this as hard as I can. And I think, in a way, the best way might be to connect school lunch to academia. And I mean by that, 
that you decide that maybe one lunch a week could be part of a geography class. And so maybe it's the geography of the Arabian Peninsula because that's what you're studying in school. And so why not feed the kids the nutritious food of that place? Why not make them some hummus that they all love and some whole wheat pita bread and maybe even a tabbouleh salad, (laughs) maybe a carrot salad with a little hot pepper in it because they love hot pepper. And therefore, you know, you could have them digest this subject deeply and, and get academic minutes for eating lunch because it's not just what we're eating right now, it's how we're eating. So even if you put nutritious lunch in a cafeteria that has the fast food values, you're having kids stand in line, eating quickly, dumping a lot off in the garbage. You never know what they're eating. And wouldn't it be wonderful if they all sat down and ate together and passed the dishes of food around and shared? What would you say is, uh, first, the biggest accomplishment that Edible Schoolyard has made so far and the biggest hurdle yet to clear in the goal of free school lunch for every child in America? I think the biggest thing that we've accomplished is to build an Edible Schoolyard project that people can walk into. And that we have been able to inspire a number of them around the country that um, are great examples in the same way that they, that they open their doors for people to visit, like the ones here in New York City. There's, we, we started out thinking that we needed to have a model in all the different p- places around the country in terms of climate and in terms of population. So we knew that New Orleans right after Katrina would be a beautiful place to grow that idea, to nourish those children. And in fact, it's been incredible. Uh, But we um, went to uh, North Carolina and we went to uh, New York and upstate New York and they they have built wonderful um, models uh, based on the values that 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 we articulated at the very beginning, and I didn't ever. I always thought that all of these schools would look the same and be the same. But of course, everyone is different. But they all express the values. Of, of, of the Edible Schoolyard Project, which are that beauty is a language of care, that the food needs to come from farms and ranches that um, take care of the land for the future, that they have to be interactive um, teaching, doing interactive 
uh, teaching that is connected to the academic subjects. And that the values of stewardship and nourishment and communication are, are incredibly important to our getting along with each other on the planet. Mm-hmm. And what's the next big hurdle to clear for Edible <laughs> Schoolyard? The next big hurdle is to overcome the idea that money is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Because we have a lot of manpower and desire, and we have it's um, a really crisis situation around health. One in two kids may have diabetes. We have hungry children everywhere. We have farmers that need support. Uh, We have, and most importantly, we have climate change. And we're experiencing that now. And we need to prepare ourselves. And food is an everyday way to, to... personally help to support um, a sustainable future. Thank you so much for that. We're going to take a very quick break, and we will be right back in just a moment. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour today with Alice Waters. Welcome back, Alice. Thank you. So uh, we've been talking about your new book, Coming to My Senses, and uh, here at Heritage Radio Network, we do have 35 weekly podcasts and radio shows all about food. And so I did ask some of our hosts if they wanted to submit any questions for you. And I had a really big response. And so I do have a few questions from our other shows that I would love to um, ask you here. And we also have in the studio with us our intern, Sam Lee, who also has a few questions. Welcome, Sam. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I'd like to do a warm-up uh, selfishly. This is my question for you because um, there is a, a new product that a few of my friends have been going crazy for on Kickstarter. Um, so in your book, you talk a lot about your appreciation for sacred spaces. And I'd like to ask you about space. Um, so in 1977, the Voyager spacecraft launched into space and a committee led by Carl Sagan designed the golden record, which was sent along with the Voyager craft to deep space. It's an audio record designed to encapsulate the essence of life on earth to convey to any alien life forms who might intercept it. And a few years ago, radio lab interviewed you, Alice, to ask what you would include in such a record And I loved your answer. It was a table that was set and laid with spring peas and salad with scallions and radishes and mustard flowers and fish soup 
with fennel and grilled toasts and wines and cheeses and everybody talking around the table. And uh, I just thought this was so lovely and specific and perfectly you. And, And I wanted to know if that changed thinking about sending this record into space for an alien to intercept and try to understand our lives. Did that change the way that you felt about space and our human lives on <laughs> Earth? I had completely forgotten about that. <laughs> but I don't think I'd change a thing. I don't. Uh, I maybe would say that the table had to be out in the garden, mm. right on the ground, and that maybe we were picking vegetables from the garden because food needs to be connected always with the season and with the land and uh, you know giving much more of the impression that nature is our provider our mother and that we need to to really protect her wow Oh, thank you. That was I was just dying to hear <laughs> what you thought of that. The the golden record uh, re- recreation has just gone up on Kickstarter, and a friend had purchased one, and she was really excited to be listening to that, the original from Carl Sagan. I thought you might be um, asking me a question about the selling of space that is happening right now. Well, that's an interesting uh, question the too. Real estate. <laughs> of airspace. It was shocking to me when I heard a panel at UCLA of people talking about that in a matter-of-fact way, that they wanted their own personal, um, you know, computer up there (laughs) and uh, keeping an eye on things. And I, I... I don't know. I I just feel like um, air is for all of us. It's essential for our lives. And we don't think about it that way, but we must. And the idea that somebody could actually be buying it all up and then selling it back to us the way that they buy up water and sell it back to us is unconscionable and, from my mind, immoral. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I have a question from Liza Hamm. She's our special projects coordinator at HRN. And she wanted to ask, um, she acknowledged that we'd be jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but in four short years, Chez Panisse is going to celebrate its 50th anniversary. And we're wondering how you might hope (laughs) to celebrate that milestone. Well, the first thing that came to me is that I would... Um, like 50 millionaires to give us the money to endow the Edible Schoolyard Project. Uh, I've been raising money for 23 years to keep it going, and we have a network of 5,500 projects around the world, and I feel terribly responsible for the wonderful school in Berkeley, which has 15 employees, uh, teachers there, as well as people who take care of our network, 
And I want it to go on into the future. And uh, it seems to me a perfect moment. But then, on the other hand, it might be a perfect moment to do a march from Los Angeles to Sacramento for public education in America. It may be a time to express the need for edible education, for taking care of every child in this country. Maybe we need to do, maybe we need to do both. Amazing. Well, you have a couple of years, and we can't wait to see what you decide. <laughs> uh, so I'd love to turn it over to Sam. All right, it's my turn. Your How turn. exciting. <laughs> well, we'll be there marching with you if you have the march. Um, Thank you. So in your book, you mentioned that your mother once told you that you've lived the life that she'd wanted to live. Are you living the life that you want to live? <laughs> oh, what a question. <laughs> just brought back my mother um, you know I can't imagine any better life than to be involved with friends and something so hopeful as and delicious as food um, I've never um, felt like I, I didn't want to do the work I'm doing I, I, it's sometimes it's overwhelming and and sometimes it's difficult, but it is always a challenge to me. And so, and every day, it's, I mean, it's just like the food is alive. It, it's changing all the time with the seasons. It's kind of got a built-in renewal. Of, uh, of of energy that comes and and it's endlessly biodiverse um, and of course it's something everyone does if he or she is lucky on this planet to do it two or three times a day so it's a common language you don't even need to speak the foreign language you you communicate with food so I, I, um, I, I love it, and I particularly love being connected to nature. And I only wish that I had more time to be uh, away and sort of lost in it, mm. because there's, I mean, it's, it's, it gives meaning to my life, and I, I think we all need that, that renewal. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, and, and what kind of life would you wish for your, for your own daughter? Is she, <laughs> she living the life that you wish that she would be leading? It's very, very busy. And I guess, you know, she follows a little bit in my footsteps of that, of being a little too busy that we need to take time for ourselves and, and replenish. But she has an artist's eye, and um, she really cares about food. She's in the process of writing a book about her childhood uh, that's called Home, and it's about food. 
So uh, she, I know, is, is fulfilled by that. So, so oh. sorry, I need to um, jump in with a question from another Sam. We have <laughs> Sam Ben Ruby. He's the host of The Grape Nation, which is one of our wine shows on uh, Heritage Radio Network. And Alice, Sam would love to ask you, how important is wine to food, and how do you approach wine pairings to complement food? Well, I think it's very important. <laughs> Um, I'm, I fell in love with wine, of course, when I went to France. But as I tell in the book, uh, I never knew whether I should have a white wine or a red wine or a rosé. And I thought, well, I should have a rosé because then they won't think I made the wrong choice. <laughs> and fortunately, it was a rosé from Danjou. And I remember it as being very tasty, but it's kept me in that rosé place. And uh, it's something that uh, uh, means a lot to me because the proprietress of Domaine Tampier in France is going to be 100 years old in a month. Wow. And she is just full of joie de vivre and she attributes it to having a glass of red wine she's drunk red wine her whole life she still drinks a glass of red wine at dinner and i i always think it adds that that little it just rounds out uh, a dish in a way that that it's difficult to do without you know adding a little bit too much vinegar or whatever it is it just helps you to it's the perfect complement um, to food I do think that do you have a current favorite rosé that you like to drink well uh, as I said, Domaine Tampier <laughs> rosé. Uh, but there are many, many rosés that have uh, come into popularity in, particularly in California right now. And I'm, I'm kind of thrilled about that, that they're affordable and they're beautiful. Uh, just a lovely, lovely color. Uh, thank you. And what do you think, Sam? <laughs> oh, I love rosé. <laughs> rosé all day. Rosé all day. Rosé yeah. all day. Um, our next question comes from Diego Senor. He's the co-host and producer of Buen Limon Radio, which is our first ever show in Spanish. And uh, he would like to ask you, uh, in your opinion, what is the role of immigration in the American restaurant kitchen? Oh, goodness. It's a it's big question. Es it's an essential role. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have always felt, though, that the role of immigrants in terms of 
producing our food, working in the farms and in the kitchen has been completely underpaid and underappreciated. And I, I just hope we can, can do a whole lot more to, to, to bring their voices and their raises and their wages <laughs> up. Mm-hmm. And I have been enriched in my life because of three immigrant families that have worked at Chez Panisse. One of them from Afghanistan, one of them from Vietnam, and one of them from Tibet. And now generations of families have worked at the restaurant. But Khalil from Afghanistan um, had skills in uh, metalwork, and just in fixing things. And so when anything broke at the restaurant, he wouldn't allow us to bring somebody in to fix it. He would do it himself. And then he got involved with the making of the lamps for the dining room and all the copper lamps. And there are so many things that have been brought into the life of the restaurant that are his artwork. And I feel the same way about uh, Don Dup, who's from Tibet, who goes up and picks up all the vegetables from Bob Kennard's farm. But now he's involved with Bob Kennard at the farm, and he has a role of, of really knowing exactly what we want. So he's kind of managing it and making sure that we get the best. And it's so... So deeply important that we, uh, again, take care of these, these um, friends who, who, who bring in their cultures to, to, to our little French restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's no longer that. It's, it's really multicultural. So we're coming up towards the end of our time, and I have one last question I'd love to ask of you, which is that if listeners to this show could do just one act to make food systems more equitable next year, what should they do? Cook with their family and or friends at least once a week buying all the food from the farmer's market, all the sustainable organic food from the farmer's market, cooked together. I love that plan. So that's going to be a wrap on today's episode of Heritage Radio Network on tour. Big thanks today to our engineer, David Tadashore, our contributors, Liza Hamm, Sam Lee, Diego Senor, Sam Ben Ruby, and enormous thanks to you, Alice Waters, for joining us in the studio today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been incredibly special having you here. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is generously supported by the Julia Child Foundation 
HRN is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to making the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place through Food Radio. To make a contribution, please visit heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. And we'd love to end the show with uh, just a paragraph from the afterword of your book, Alice. I'd love to read this. I always joked with Bob Shearer that when he lost his bid for Congress, I was so disappointed that I opened Chez I was deeply disillusioned about politics, and by opening the restaurant, I really thought I was just dropping out. I was going to do my own thing. No politics, just my little place. But it became political, because as it turned out, Food is the most political thing in all of our lives. Eating is an everyday experience, and the decisions that we make about what we eat have daily consequences. And those daily consequences can change the world. Thank you so much. Alice Waters reading from her new book, Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.